Hello, everyone. You're listening to Night's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. In this episode of Night's History Cast, I had the pleasure, the absolute pleasure, of talking with Barbara Palacio Wessels, a child of Operación Pedro Pan, Operation Peter Pan. She arrived to the United States via this operation on September 27, 1962, with her two younger siblings. This podcast, this podcast was very, um, this podcast was awesome. Um, I, I, I can't, you know, I always do these intros and outros immediately after I speak with them just to give like my fresh, honest take review of the conversation that just happened. And I'm doing that right now, of course. And I'm just, as I'm talking, I'm thinking of the conversation. This was, this was just, I was, I'm just very glad I I had, I had the opportunity to talk with her. This was a very unique podcast. Um, I'm really grateful to talk to her. You know, in, in history, we learned, you know, primary sources are the, are the best, right? And it's certainly true. And you can argue that, you know, podcast is a form of oral history. It just depends on what, what subject you're talking about. Um, when you want to compare it to like traditional oral histories that historians do. And I could definitely say that this was an oral history. That's why this podcast was so unique because I'm, it was, it's not just your typical podcast, just talking to someone about a book or about an event, which I love just as much. But this was an oral history, and this is someone who lived, experienced, and was shaped by a real-world event that mostly everybody else learns through pages or lectures, which is just as fine. Again, I don't, I'm not trying to bring down one to to bring up the other. It just hits different, to say the least, when you're listening to someone talk about their lives and how an historic event shaped it. And, you know, I felt that way in the panel and I'm feeling it even more now talking about it and just thinking back of how awesome the conversation that I just had about 15 minutes ago of this recording. So a huge shout out to her. And, you know, as I said, at the end of the recording, this is by far one of my favorites. And, um, so please, please stick around through the entire episode. I promise it will be worth your while to listen to this inspirational, impactful story. I really do appreciate it. So enough of me talking and cue that music. Hello, everyone. This is Sebastian Garcia from Night's History Cast, and I have the absolute pleasure of talking with Barbara Palacio Wessels, who was a part of Panel 2 in the Day 1 portion of the Operación Pedro Pan event, Operation Peter Pan event, which featured community experts that shared their personal perspectives to aid our understanding of the profound impact of Pedro Pan on their lives. And my God, it did aid our understanding. 
a truly riveting, powerful, and emotional panel as we, the audience members, got to listen to you and other members talk about how this historic operation, this historic event in U.S.-Cuban relations shaped your lives forever. And if I could just get a glimpse of that for this podcast, that would truly make me happy because I believe it's important for people to get to know your stories and because of that, learn this history. A reoccurring statement that I've been saying throughout this week when I'm talking about um, this event with people is that, you know, there's one thing to learn the history in a textbook or from a class. And there's another thing to learn and be educated by the beating hearts of the people who lived this history and were molded by it. So thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk with me. I sincerely appreciate it. Great. All right. So my first question, let's start from the beginning. Talk to us about life in Cuba during your early years up until Castro came into power in 1959. And, you know, because I think that's important to provide the context or situating this conversation. Okay. I was 11 years old when Castro took over. Before that, my life in Cuba was very normal. My father had his own business. He was CPA. And we were not wealthy, but we were comfortable. And uh, our lives were secured. You know, we didn't really, just like a normal childhood kind of thing. And uh, once Castro took over, then everything changed. So Castro comes into power in 1959, and you stated in the panel that you were turning 11 years old. What was the attitude? What was what was life like at that moment in time when things were becoming official for the Castro regime? A lot of people was in favor. A lot of people were in favor of him, so they were happy. I had members in my family that were happy. My father was not. He was concerned about you know, what was going to happen. And my mother, of course, was influenced by my, my dad's opinion. So they were kind of like, let's see what happens. Kind of let's wait and see, you know. But we we were not allowed to get involved in any of the festivities and all the celebration. So you're 12 years old and your parents pull you out of school because of all the indoctrination from the Castro regime that was taking place in the school system. Yes. You mentioned how you were always a very good student and how you hated the fact that you weren't going to school. Talk to us a little bit about this experience and what did you do during this time of you being out of the school system? Well, it was uh, very upsetting for me to have to be out of the school system, but I could understand why my parents did what they did. I mean, we were supposed to be trained with uh, with a youth militia in order to be, to, even though they said everything was free, there was a price to everything. And the price was that we were supposed to be doing work for the government, train on get the youth militia, learn how to carry a gun. I was 12 years old, how can I carry a gun? And then serve both in front of the school to uh, save the, the school from Pedalista Yankees. Mm. So this is the kind of mentality that we were dealing with. So I can understand my parents' decision, but in order to keep me busy, my mother had me take classes in typing and um, you know, this is like a private thing. And then shorthand and piano. So those are the things that kept me busy. And she did something similar for my sister with the things that she liked. Like my, my sister liked to sew, so she learned to sew. And, you know, we just kept busy like that for two years. And we watched all of our friends go to school or we would stay home. Even at this early age, you 
quote, really wanted to leave Cuba, end quote. And your previous answers can explain why that was so. But in retrospect, would you have changed that approach to something more like your parents who how they were a little bit hesitant to send you and your siblings away or you would not have changed that approach? I think my my parents were pretty wise when it came to delaying our exit because things were so bad that nobody could understand how they lasted as long as they did. So um, we had our paperwork ready in January. We didn't leave until September 1962. So I could understand my parents' decision to do that. I was anxious to leave because I thought school is starting. I want to go back to school. And the only way that I could go back to school is if I left the country. It's January 1962, and you have your paperwork in place to leave Cuba. Talk to Mm -hmm. us a bit about the mechanics of how that process worked. How did you and your family learn about Operación Pedro Pan, Operation Peter Pan, and what were the conditions like for your parents to finally decide eight months later in September of 1962 to let you and your siblings leave Cuba? I wasn't very aware about the, the you know, the, how this took place because my parents wouldn't share a lot of information to, with us. Mm-hmm. They didn't want us to be anxious and, you know, upset or whatever. Right. But I knew that my father, I remember my father talking about the visa waiver that he had three visa waivers for one for each one of us and uh and i wasn't sure what that meant but i knew that it had something to do with our leaving the country eventually and that and i know they were hoping for for us not to have to leave and if we had to leave they were hoping to be able to leave together so they explained that to us at the end so that's what i have in you know in, for that in that area i don't have a lot of information in that area and things got worse, which is why it finally took place in September, you know, that that delayed. Yeah, they, they just, I guess they probably set them a target date in their head, mm-hmm. in their mind, and they decided this is it, we, we cannot wait any longer. And they were right. I mean, when you think about it, three weeks, less than three weeks later, the October missile crisis happened. Mm-hmm. We would have never left. Yeah. And we waited any, you know, longer. So... It is September 27th, 1962. Walk us through that day of you arriving. Oh, my goodness. That day was unbelievable. My father had rented a car to take us to the airport. But we couldn't pick, We couldn't have him pick us up hmm. at the house. Because right in front of our house was the, forget the name of it. But, oh, Comité de Defensa de la Revolución. Hmm. That's CDR. So... They were watching us constantly. Right. I mean, anybody that came to visit, they would write down the name. If they didn't know the name, they would come to the house and say, who is here? Why is he here? This is how bad things were. So my father had made arrangements with this fellow that was going to drive us to the airport to pick us up like two blocks away. And the night before, he, he, he my father gave him our luggage so that he would be in the car already. So I remember walking down the street, and when we got to the corner, I turned around and I looked at the house, and I said to myself, "I know that I know that I'm never going to see this again." Wow. So we left, and nobody knew that we had left until after we were gone. So it worked out okay. I think they were very wise in doing doing it the way that they did. As soon as you arrived in Miami, you went directly to the Cuban Children Camp in Florida City. And you spent two years and nine months in that camp. 
Talk to us about that experience and what it was like for you and your siblings being there for that duration. Well, um, it was hard in, in the beginning because our little brother couldn't stay with us. Hmm. My sister and I could be in the same house. But my little brother had to go to another house where there were boys his age. And uh, he was very fortunate, my brother, because he ended up probably with the best house parents there were. The camp, they were absolutely beautiful people, and he got very attached to them. But we were down the street from him, and uh, we saw him every day after school. So he really, I think he missed us, but he really didn't. And he made friends very quickly. <laughs> and then my sister and I adjusted to the fact that we had to live in this house and we have to wash our own clothes that we'd never washed before because there wasn't a washing machine. So we had to do it by hand. Hmm. And um, that first house parents that we had, we only had them for a few months. And then from there, we went to a better um you know, house because the house parents there were more affectionate, mm. so it was nicer, right? And they were very compassionate and very understanding, and they wouldn't allow us to call them mommy and papi because they said your parents are in Cuba, so they we call them tio and tia. Oh, that's nice. And it was nice. So we were there for about six or eight months, and then eventually we were transferred to another house uh where the house parents were actually related to the second house parents oh wow they were not as affectionate but they were nice people and that's what i spent most of the time and that's where i met my friend norma who was sitting next to me yesterday and uh, we were there until the day that we left we we became a family basically that's nice so it's 1965 right and the camp in florida city is closing you get placed in a foster home in Indiana, and with the help of several Catholic charity organizations, they connected you with this family. Talk to us about that day you arrived at the airport in Indiana, which at this point you were already 17, right? 17, yes. Well, um, of course, I was the oldest, so I was in charge, right? Right. My sister and my brother are looking at me like, okay, what do we, what do, we do next? Um. The flight was smooth, um, you know, uneventful. But when we got to Indianapolis, we ran into problems because uh, somehow there was a communication breakdown be between the uh, Catholic Charities Office in Miami and the Catholic Charities Office in Indianapolis. Somebody forgot to make a phone call or something. I don't know. Hmm. We were by the luggage area. We picked up our, our suitcase. And we waited and waited and waited for somebody to show up, and nobody showed up. So this one man that handled the luggage for the, for the passengers saw me, saw us, and he came to me and said, is everything okay? And I said, no. So I gave him the tag that I was wearing, and I said, look, they're supposed to pick us up. And my English was pretty broken. So I don't know how much he understood, but he understood enough for him to go to an office and have those people in the office call Catholic Charities, and get somebody to come and pick us up. You spent six months with your foster family, mainly because by the end of those six months, you were actively figuring out ways to get your parents' visas to leave Cuba and come to the United States. But before we get to that point, what were those six months like with your foster family? Well, it was different because it was a big family. They had six children. They wow. all just was like, 
the audience was like 12 mm. and the young I I was responsible for the youngest two girls, two years old and three years old. Wow. And I share a room with them. So I was in the baby's room. And uh, it was quite interesting. It was quite nice because I learned a lot from them. And the babies were adorable. And they were really um, good girls. They, you know, I told them, I tell them, we got to clean up the room. So they helped me clean up and tidy up and things like that. So, um, my brother was in the um, boys' room with the other two, with the two boys, and my sister was at uh, a boarding school in Indianapolis. So she would come home on the weekends. My foster dad would pick her up every Friday evening after work, and then he'll bring her home. And then on Sunday evenings, he will take her back. That's very nice. Did that for six months. Yeah. So I got very close to them. And I learned a lot from my foster mother because she was quite, quite a lady, beautiful person. So she was only 10 years older than me. Wow. Mm -hmm. So she was like a mother and a big sister too. Yeah. That's, yeah. You didn't say that in the panel. Wow. No, I know. Something that was very impactful to hear during the panel was when you shared the moment when your foster dad was helping you get visas for your parents and he told you, quote, you know, in this country, when we have a problem like that, we write to our congressman, end quote. Yes. What was it like for you to hear such faith in a political institution, given where you come from and where you grew up earlier in life? Well, when I heard that, it was kind of surprising to me, but I believed him. Mm -hmm. So I said, this, I have nothing to lose. Uh, you know, with his help, I'll write the letters. And I, I, I wrote two identical letters with all the information about my parents included. One went to uh, U.S. Representative Lee Hamilton. He was the Indiana's ninth district representative. And the other one went to U.S. Senator Birch Bayh from Indiana. Well, immediately, I heard from him. I don't remember exactly if we got a phone call or if they sent us a letter, but I knew that they were working on it. And they had gone to the State Department to inquire what needed to be done to bring my parents home. It was a matter of weeks. Yes, I have written that here that you said that in the panel that it was a matter of weeks. And then your parents finally arrived in December. 1965 you know first yes. they, first they arrived in miami and then they arrived to indiana right two days before christmas right which was that must have been super nice and you know what what was yeah. what was that moment like seeing your parents for the first time in in over three years oh my goodness i actually we made the front page of the newspaper mm. the indianapolis star wow mm -hmm. i do have a copy of it it's very faded. But <laughs> yeah. it's a, a big picture of us crying and hugging. It's just unbelievable. That's beautiful. If, if you, I don't know if you have access to that kind of information, but it's, it's there. Indianapolis Star, it was December 23rd, 1965. Wow. So anyway, I have it. <laughs> Bookcase behind me. So That's awesome. That's another thing you didn't, you didn't share in the, in the panel. No, you know. I don't even remember what I said to whom. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. <I'm> just, 
that that's totally fair i've talked to so many people i don't know what i said to whom but anyway so it is um it is it was available we made a friend oh not only that that night when they arrived uh-huh. we have the tv on okay uh-huh. and we're watching the news and i see this man and i said i know that man well he had interviewed me at the airport and the next thing we know that we are all there <laughs> Wow. So I said, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. So we got a lot of recognition. (laughs) Yeah, that must have been very surreal. Yeah. In the panel, you said, quote, I learned a lot about American life with my foster family. Can Can you share to us some of the things you learned about American life with your foster family? Well, I learned how independent children are supposed to be in a home, when they're in an American home. And I learned how, because I never left a finger when I was in Cuba, so I learned how we had a chore chart, mm. and every everybody's name was on it, and everybody had this certain responsibilities. Some of them varied, some of them didn't. For example, in my case, all I did was help with the dishes. Sometimes I helped cooking, but my real big chore was to do the ironing for the, for everybody. Because my foster mother did not like to iron. And when she said, when she found out that I enjoy ironing, she said, well, that's going to be your job. <laughs> so every Saturday, I spent, I spent the whole day ironing, and I was happy with it, you know. So that was surprising to me. It was surprising to me how the children, the boys especially, would take care of the dog. Mm-hmm. Feed him, wash him, um, bring him in, take him out, whatever needed to be done with a the dog, they did. And, um, oh, when I saw my foster dad mowing the lawn, I've never seen that before. Wow. That was a surprise. Yeah, because they lived on an acre of land, so it was a lot of grass to mow. And I actually learned how to run the lawnmower myself. I enjoyed it. I, it was a sitting lawnmower, so I would ride the lawnmower up and down. <laughs> That's that's More nice. <laughs> also, I remember also the way that my foster mother and I talked is something that I I didn't do with my mother very much for some reason. She was she didn't say she didn't prepare us for a lot of things. Um, when we had questions, we usually went to our friends. Mm. But with my foster mother, she and I became very close, and any question that I had, I felt free to ask her, and that was very nice. Do you still stay in touch with your foster family? You're still close with them? I am. Uh, we stay close all this time, all these years. And then in the last 10 years, they've moved permanently to the villages, or maybe 15. Uh, for a while there, they were coming here for the summer. There were snowbirds, mm-hmm. and they would rent a house for like three months. And then eventually they bought a place, and they moved to the villages. And I moved to Claremont 13 years ago, so they're only 35 miles away. Wow. So we get, we get uh, together every once in a while, and especially when there are big events, like my foster dad became uh, his 90th birthday was a, a year and a half ago, so we had a big celebration for his 90th birthday. I was there for that. My brother was there for that. My, my brother's uh, family was there for that. Then when my nephew got married, my my brother's son, uh, my foster parents came to the wedding, and so did a couple of the siblings. The boys came 
so so we stay close all this time and, and it's just like like we never left that's so nice to hear that's very nice i know i was kind of sorry that we had to leave indiana uh, because it was such a good place to live but everything was far away they were not you know the 60s especially i don't think i don't even know how many people live there but the distances were very long very far and uh my father had lost his job uh and uh he said i there weren't that many jobs around so he thought it'd be best for us to move to new jersey because we did have family there and there were plenty of jobs in new jersey so that's what we did and before you left to new jersey you graduated high school in indiana yes. correct yeah they uh my my father left head and then my mother stayed behind with us and uh they they wanted to wait for me to graduate before we left which was you know was the right thing to do and with the help of my foster family and also my friends in the neighborhood uh we got everything shipped you know the furniture that was given to us by everybody in the town everybody gave you something and we got on the, on the bus Greyhound bus to New Jersey <laughs> so. and you accomplished one of your your biggest life goals in New Jersey, which was graduating college and becoming a professional woman. So how, how was that experience like? Well, um, I I always wanted to go to college. It was actually something that my father put in our head. Mm-hmm. From the moment we were born, you need to have a college degree. That was just the way it was. So when I got to New Jersey, one of the first things that I did was to go to Rutgers to register. And uh, I spoke to the director of the university college program, which is the evening school. Mm. And uh, he said to me, we're going to accept you, but because my grades were good, mm-hmm. but you we need to improve your English. So he had me do a course in language arts, which was not a prerequisite for any degree, nor did he carry any credits with it. It was just for me to practice English. And I did, and I passed it. And then that was one of the requirements. So I started my taking my other classes. I was taking three classes a semester, nine credits. And I started out with the um, prerequisites. I wanted to make sure that I didn't screw anything up. Because sometimes if you take your electives first, you may lose the opportunity of taking a prerequisite. <laughs> so, right. so I did that. It took me six years to do that. I graduated in 1974. With what degree? A bachelor's, bachelor's of Arts degree in economics. Nice. Mm-hmm. And you also got your first job in New Jersey, correct? Well, I was working. My first job in New Jersey was actually working in Woolworth. Hmm. I was making $40 a week. Okay. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Especially when each credit that you pay for is a hundred and some dollars. So it was expensive. Right. So I was saving my money and I was paying for my own schooling. And one day I was sitting in my, one evening, I was sitting in my accounting class and this fellow that sat next to me, you know, we talked every once in a while. And I, w- I mentioned something about saving my money for college. And he said to me, why don't you come and work for my company? Mm. And he said, the name of the company, he says, if you get B or better on, on your grades, They'll pay 75% of your tuition. And I said, wow. And he said, I'll put a good word for you. 
I put in a I put in a good word for you, and sure enough, I used him as a reference. He knew when I was coming for my interview. He had talked to the HR manager, the employment manager, and the next thing I knew, they offered me a job. Wow! And I started there, and as soon as you know, I continued with my schooling, and uh, and then eventually, after I because they had a they had a trial period. I didn't qualify for the tuition refund until I was officially, you know, um, out of that trial period. I forget the name of the period. It wasn't trial. It was more like, I don't remember. But anyway, that was so many years ago. And uh, so anyway, once that happened, I started putting my applications for reimbursement. And I was getting them, like, timely so that I could pay for the next semester, you know. And it worked out real well. They didn't pay for my books. They didn't pay for the lab fees or any other fees, just the tuition itself. But that's was good enough. Right. It's most the mostly the most expensive part. Yeah. So then in nineteen seventy-eight, you stated in the panel that you your job transferred you to Florida. So you came back to Florida. So what was that like for you? Oh, I asked for the transfer because I was married. I got a job in Fort Lauderdale and it was you know, a good opportunity for him. So I requested a transfer and I got it. I had a very good reputation in my, in my company and they wanted to help me. So they said, yeah, we'll give it to you. They had just opened an office in Fort Lauderdale and, he's, and they told me, it's nothing like what you're used to working, you know, because I worked in corporate planning, I worked in marketing and I worked in, I actually became an economist for the company. It was the junior economist. There were two of us. And we, we, we would write uh, like the World Trade Outlook for, mm. the, for the big shots to look at with what we thought our forecast looked like for tonnage, you know, for to, to ship around the world. So I, they told me, it's nothing like what you do now. It's more like a supervisor of a bunch of women to uh, input data into the computer so that to create the documentation for the ships and i said i'll take it right and that was my first experience managing people which came very handy by the way later on so i was happy to come to florida and i um i was coming home on the weekend sometimes i was here like a month by myself in in the beginning i actually had to come down to work before my husband was able to start his job so I had to leave him and the children and, and come down. and But it, everything fell into place. You you can make things work when right. you really want to. Right. So I, I stayed a month in a hotel. And then I went home on my twins' birthday, my their first birthday. I have twins. And that's the day that we celebrated. I came home early in the day. We celebrated their birthday. And then late at night, my mother and I and the three children left. Wow. Yeah. So we got here on the 25th of March, 1978. Wow. And that, and since that moment on, you've never left Florida again, right? No, I didn't. No, I didn't. I did travel a lot with my job, uh, with the first company. And then when I left this first company, I left it in 1993 because they, might, they did away with my job. They actually... I'll send my job, my responsibilities offshore. I had become, uh, I had gone from being a supervisor of documentation to becoming a manager of internal controls. 
and that job was sent off offshore. And then I had no choice but to go look for another job, which at first it was kind of like, oh, I hate to do this because I put in 24 years with them. They even paid for my master's degree, mm. you know, when I was in Florida, mm -hmm. because I figured, you know, might as well do this. Why not? Right. So, um, so I did it like in four years and because it was a master's degree, they would pay for a hundred percent of the tuition, but you have to get an A every time. Oh. So I got a, I got an A every time yeah. and I got a hundred percent. So that worked, that worked out real well because I got my degree in May of 93 and my job went away in June, 1993, a month later. Wow. So they invested all that money on me. Right. So anyway, so what happened was I went, one of the secretaries, one of the executive secretaries said to me, you know, Barbara, this company, I don't know if I'm supposed to mention companies, but anyway, this company is looking for somebody, someone that does something like what you do. And I know this because this sales guy from my current company called on them and he knew. So anyway, I, I heard about that. I, I went and looked in the classifieds. And that's how we used to find jobs before, classified ads in the newspaper. And and I saw the job, you know, the job posted in the in the newspaper. I said, oh, my gosh, this looks like what I do. So I applied and I got it. And after I got the job, the VP in my office in the current company asked me, can you stay? <laughs> they were going to do give me a job uh, somewhere else. I said, I, and I said, well, I have to think about it. I said, I already got an offer and I actually accepted it. Mm. He said, well, think about it. And I decided that it was time to move on because I had worked in international jobs and that was my love to work with other international, you know, with Latin American countries. Mm -hmm. I had been doing that for many years and I was going to do that with a new company. So I said, the job that you're offering me is domestic. My heart is in Latin America. So I said, I want to take this job. And I took it. And it was the best thing I've got ever done. It was it was like, wow. I I was like, I died and went to heaven. This is unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> That's great to hear. This company was so much better than anything I've ever seen. And uh, it was almost like... It's such a different culture. It was like everybody was so empowered to do stuff. And they treated me like I knew everything. I said to myself, gosh, I have to be in, but I know everything here. Because <laughs> they had their faith, you know, placed on me. But that gave me the incentive to be better and actually learn quicker. Because the industry was totally different to what I was doing before. Before I was doing a service service industry. And now I was in manufacturing. I had to learn about product co costing. And I had to go to all these countries, to all these plants, and actually learn about the operation and do inventories. I mean, do all these things that I, had, I hadn't done before. Right. And it was, it was such an experience. It was just the best. Those were the best 15 years of my career life, the, the time that I spent with them. So. That's awesome to hear. Thank you. It definitely elevated your perspective and your 
your experiences of your professional career from what you're telling me, which is great. He did. He did. It was like, it was, it was like, it was working for an American legend because it's, it was such a well-known company to the point that when I travel overseas, I mean, I used to travel with my first company overseas and most people didn't know who I, you know, who were for some reason they didn't know. In this case, I had to hide my, I caught my business card because I had it in the luggage tag thing. I had to flip it so people wouldn't know who was with because people would stop me and ask me questions. Wow. It was like unbelievable. And uh, it was an experience that I never had before. And eventually you get used to it. Mm. And then they trained us to talk to the press because if there was a problem with anything of production or a labor dispute or whatever, they will ask people, especially if you came from the United States, they will ask you questions and they train us how to talk to the press. So that was very helpful too. I mean, we avoided it, but if we had to, we were, we knew what to do. Right. I want to discuss with you some of the themes that were present amongst you and your other panelists when talking about your lives and the impact that Operation Peter Pan had on it. So the first one I want to ask you about is, how did the dynamic between your family change after not seeing each other for three years and three months in your case, especially when in that time, you know, those are your formative years, your developing years of life? Well, as I said on Tuesday, and I say every time, I became an adult on September 27th, 1962, when I, when I arrived here, because I had to make decisions for me, for my sister and my brother. And uh, that was a lot of responsibility. So in the three years and three months that we were separated from our parents, I was an old woman in my head, even though I was only 17. Right. And uh, my parents thought I was going to be the same girl that left three years before, and that wasn't the case. But they got used to it eventually. And then they had to depend on us a lot because they didn't speak the language. Mm. So... If they have a problem, if they had a problem at work, remember, this is an Indian and nobody else speaks Spanish. Right. Just us. So if they had a problem at work, we had to write them a letter, write, write a letter for them to either take it with them or we had to translate for them. If they went to the doctors, guess who had to go with the doc to the doctors with them? We did. Right. Because they, they couldn't communicate with the doctors. So it was kind of difficult to do that. Once we got to New Jersey, though, things were different for them because people in New Jersey, there were people that spoke Spanish. There were doctors that spoke Spanish. Right. So they became very uh, independent, and that was good for them. And I was happy. So, and they were happy. On to the next theme, hard work. Hard work was something that was common amongst all the life stories that were shared during the panel which I believe you were the one that said that your parents told you hard work never killed anybody. Correct. Yeah, which I love that. How much, you know, did not just hard work, something that is very embedded in Cuban culture, but other elements in Cuban culture aid in your survival the moment you step foot in this country? Mm -hmm. I, um, besides hard work doesn't kill anybody, we also used to think of um, never give up. If you something is not falling into place, things are not working for you, don't give up. Just keep trying and do something else or find another way out or whatever. But 
just just don't throw your arms up in the air and just give up. You don't want to do that. So when I came to the U.S., my first um, priority was to learn the language mm-hmm. because I I knew very little, very little, and um, and it was it was hard for me. It was very hard, but I that that was my priority to to be able to, to be comfortable speaking English, and. Um, when um, we went to the foster home, that was my first time talking so freely to people that spoke English. Right. Because in the, in the before, I was living with people that spoke Spanish, and then I went to school with both Spanish-speaking and English-speaking kids. So it was kind of like, okay. But this time, I had no choice but to speak English to people that didn't speak anything else. So those six months were very, very interesting for me because I now had to um, just talk to other people that I didn't know on the bus to school. I never rode a bus to school with English-speaking kids. I had to communicate with them, so I was forced to, you know, be more um, outgoing right. than, I, than I was because I was very shy in the beginning. So that was, uh, it worked out real well. I did have a good teacher in high school in Indiana that helped me a lot because she would, uh, her class was about breaking down words, learn the, where they came from, whether it was Greek or Latin, and what, they, what you would know what the words meant by just looking at the root and the, uh, you know, how they were formed. And that was a very useful class for me, and I, I really liked it very much. So my one uh, awakening was uh, about English was when what, the first time I ever I had a dream in English. Mm. That was when I knew I can do this. Wow! Because in the past I had always had dreams in Spanish. Right. And then one night I had a dream in English, and I was talking in English. And every, everything was about English. And I thought, oh, my gosh. I crossed the, you know, the bridge to the other side. I'm on the other side now. So I knew then that I could do this. So I, I did it. Wow. What an awakening. I know. What an awakening. Yeah. It's like subconsciously your brain finally, like, felt. It switched. Right. It, it's just, oh, my goodness. This is. So then English has always been, I love English, number one. And also, I always wanted to be better at it. So even when I was at FAU for my master's, one of the requirements before we graduated with our master's at FAU, you know, the MBA, because they, they wanted to make sure that business, the, peop, the business people at FAU actually knew how to speak and write and make presentations and standing in front of a camera and do all that kind of stuff. They had a communications program that lasted a whole summer. Mm. We didn't have to pay for it. We didn't get any credits for it, but it was mandatory and you couldn't get your degree until you satisfactorily finished that communications program. And that was like heaven sent because I had to do a presentation. I had to, they had to videotape my presentation. I had to write a paper. I had to do all these different things that normally I wouldn't do in a regular classroom. Yeah. And, and that was very, very helpful. And then that ultimately made you so much more comfortable with the language. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
the final theme that I at least found amongst all your answers was that you three ladies made it explicitly clear that you have been very fortunate and blessed to have had the experiences you had with this program because others may not have been so fortunate. You know, it's like it's a roll of a dice. Yes. Given that it's been 61 years since you left Cuba via Operación Pedro Pan, Operation Peter Pan, how do you look back at such a historic event in general, but how that event truly molded you and the trajectory your life took? Well, I think that if I had stayed in Cuba, I probably wouldn't be alive today, frankly, because um, they everybody knew that we were not for the government. There were no opportunities. And uh, I had some health issues that if I had been in the, in the uh, in Cuba, I probably wouldn't have survived them. So because of that alone, I feel blessed that I'm here, you know, but also because I'm able to grow and flourish and do all these things that otherwise I couldn't do. I am just blessed that I was able to leave when I did. And I give thanks every day. And I, I actually did a presentation recently to a women's group in church where I told them that this date, this anniversary for me, has become more than an, than an anniversary, more than a birthday, more than any kind of celebration, but more so a day of Thanksgiving, a reflection. And that's what I usually do September 27th every year. That's powerful. I reflect and I give thanks. What are, I think someone asked this question in the, in the Q&A, and it was a really good question, so I'm I'm stealing it. <laughs> but okay. um, how do you, you know, throughout all these years, how do you stay in touch with other um, members that went through the same operation, Operation Peter Pan? You know, I think someone said there's a Facebook group. Like, talk to us a little bit about how you remain in touch with those people. We, different ways. Some of them Facebook, some of them by phone. And then we have this group that was created by the lady that um, Isabel was talking about, Elie Chauvel, I think was her name. And the name of the group uh, is Operation Pedro Pan Group Inc. And we pay dues every year and we stay in touch by email letters. If I were closer to them, I would be going to like monthly lunches or breakfasts. They have a big event, a gala every the weekend before Thanksgiving, I've been to a couple of those where they have uh, a dinner, a dance, and a celebration, and then you pay money for it to go. But that money goes into their charitable work that they do for all the children that are here alone. Right. So, and uh, it's a beautiful group, and I'll always be a member of that as long as I live. And every time we get together, it's like we pick up where we left off. Like time never passed. Yeah. Exactly. I'm very curious as to, you know, when was this past Tuesday in the in the event? Was that the first time you were invited to speak about your life and this operation at a public space or not really? I just want to know when when did that start when people started asking you to speak? November this last year mm. in November. I, as I said, I belong to the Council of Catholic Women at my church. Mm -hmm. And this lady and I, 
we both co were co-chairs of the Spirituality Commission for the council. So one day we were working together and somehow I let the cat out, out of the bag. <laughs> Because I never, I never, I never talked about anything like that. A lot of people don't even know where I come from because mm. I don't share, I don't share personal information like that. Right. When she heard that, she said that was like in the summer. She said to me, "You gotta share that with somebody." So I said, "I, I don't know that I can." And she said, "Well, you have to because it's important." Anyway, she didn't push me too hard, but she put something in my head and I said, maybe I need to work with something like that. And I had already worked on a paper for the OPPG, you know, the Operation Purifying Group. Mm -hmm. They wanted uh, to put an anthology together and they asked some of us to write a paper and I did. And I submitted it. And I don't know if you made it or not, but I haven't heard, but we had a Zoom meeting like this and we talked about it. We read our paper. Everybody did. And I did a pretty good job on it, but it was very emotional because I had a lot of detail there that was pretty emotional. So I decided maybe I need to sanitize that one and use it for the meeting, which I did. Mm. I, I, I told I told my, my friend, I said, look, I need to do this in a way that I don't shed a tear because if I start crying, then I won't be able to finish it. Right. So I did it. I sanitized it. And... Uh, was like 50 people there you know when i did it and i got through it and a lot of people had questions a lot of people hugged me and kissed me and all that kind of stuff so that was like it and then recently in january i was contacted by a classmate from my high school in indiana wow through facebook okay and we became friends He's like a historian for the school, and he asked me, I'm curious, how do you come to this country? Because in the yearbook, it says that I'm from, I was from Cuba, but that was about it. Mm -hmm. And he asked me, how did you come to this country? And I said, well, that's a long story, so <laughs> I'm going to send you a copy of my sanitized version. <laughs> uh -huh. And I did. And then he, he texted me. He send me a, me a message through messenger and he says i need to share this with everybody else i cannot keep this to myself he had already helped me find some pictures of me in the yearbook so i could give to my daughter-in-law and uh i said to him well whatever you write i need to see it first so he wrote it and he posted he it was i mean he did a beautiful job and then he had me he quoted me everything that was in the paper and more and uh, he put it up on Facebook on a site that is exclusive to people from Shelbyville, Indiana. Mm. And then he also posted on his own site, a Facebook page. And then that opened the door for all these people to invite me to be their friends from Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> so in the last two months, all I've been doing is here I am. I never look back. I never, because I always think you need to focus on the present. You know, and now I found myself for the last two months looking back and learning about Shelbyville, Indiana, and learning about these friends that I had, and it's been amazing. So it's it's kind of like, I guess that's the what they call the baptism of fire. <laughs> that you that you actually you actually can do this. Right. So 
when a couple of weeks ago, when they asked me if I could do this because the other presenter was told him that he couldn't make it, I said, okay, I'll do it. And, um, and I did it. Yeah. I, thought, I hope I did well. I don't know. <laughs> you did. I'll find out when I see the uh, recording. We're going to get the link soon. So I, it felt really good to do this. And, um, and I'm happy that I did it. Yeah. Well, th- well, there you go. You answered my, my next question. I was going to say, are you, are you happy that, you know, you took your friend's advice back in the summer of starting to share your story? Um, because I agree with her. It is an important one. That's exactly why I'm here at this particular time yes. talking to you. Yes. yes. I actually posted the information that I received from, um, Cecilia Milanese. She has sent me, um, a link the program and she has sent me a copy of the poster and I, I wrote a little something about it and I put both of those things up on Facebook and a lot of my friends um, were aware of it. I mean, I didn't have anybody come with me, but um, I had a friend, in another Pedro Pan in North Carolina. She sat through the whole thing on Zoom. Wow. Yeah. So that was nice. Yeah. Well, I could, I, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but I know my, my, the part that I enjoyed the most from the two day event was your panel because it is different to, you know, I've, I've taken Cuban history. I'm a history major here at UCF and I've taken Cuban history. Um, and one of my mentors is a, is a Cuban professor. And, but there is some, there's just something completely unique when you're listening to the people that actually live this. So that, at least that was the part that I really appreciated and enjoyed. And, and I, again, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day talk to talk to me about it more. I really do. Thank you. It's my pleasure. One last question, just because in this, this question I didn't even write. It's just something that I'm thinking about as you're talking about your life and everything that I'm just curious. Mm-hmm. What are what are your thoughts on the, you know, the quote unquote American dream, right? You know, what, just, I want to know your thoughts on it. I think it does exist. And I think it's fair for anybody who wants to, to actually take advantage of it. Because it's available to everybody. Mm-hmm. So. 100% agree. I think it's, I think it's harder for people that were born here. Mm-hmm. To see it. Mm. See what's available. Yeah. For me, as I as I told my children, I am an American by choice, and I I still see things differently than somebody that was born here, right. because there's a lot of opportunities, and you just need to know where they are and how to get to it, and you know take advantage of them. That's a powerful answer, and I 100% agree with you. And I feel like part of it, it this is just my my opinion. I feel like part of it, you know, my I was born here, right, and I was born in the United States, but my parents were not. My parents are Colombian and they emigrated to the United States when they were really young. Not not as young as you, of course, but when they were still early young adults. And, you know, something that it's so funny because lately I've been having conversations with people in my personal life just talking about your immigrant experience and America in general. And I think part of it is because people take people that are born here are more likely to take things for granted that when you come from an outside perspective, you you just you don't. I know, and some of them are a little entitled. Mm, yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. And yeah. when, and when you've been sort of forced to adapt, mm-hmm. 
it just totally changed your worldview and you're more grateful, more appreciative of things that are out there. So yeah, that's why I really wanted to ask you. I didn't have that written. I just, as you were talking in the panel and as you were talking mm -hmm. right now to me, I was like, you know, your life is an embodiment of that dream. And that's awesome. Yeah. I remember, I remember when I was in the camp, I used to think they're, pay, they're, they're spending all this money on me. When I get out of here, I need to figure out a way to pay them back. Mm -hmm. And I think I have. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Well, those are all the questions I've had for you today. Thank you so much, Barbara. I really appreciate it. It's been a true, yes. it's been a true pleasure to talk to you, um, meeting you at the event, but talking to you one-on-one. It's been great. This is for sure like one of my favorite interviews I've done. I was really looking forward to this just because of that unique element that you bring. So I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me and good luck to you and your studies. And if there's anything I can do for you, you know how to find me. I really appreciate that. Thank you. That was the pod. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it. I certainly did enjoyed producing it and talking with Barbara Palacio Wessels. It was, it was truly great. And I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to do so. I didn't mention it in the intro because I was so, you know, I don't know. Caught up. It sounds, sounds, has a negative connotation, but I was so into just absorbing what had happened in the conversation that I had with her, that I, that was my main focus. But of course, as you know, the description of the episode says, this is a part of the Operación Pedro Pan event that took place here at UCF March 28th, March 29th of 2023. And this episode is part two of a bit of essentially a little mini series that I'm producing for this event, because this event is one of a kind in terms of, you know, there's just not a lot of them out there, you know, specifically in this university, I'm not going to talk for other places, but, um, so I just really wanted to seize the opportunity seize the moment and do a mini series of the podcast highlighting everyone's voices everyone's perspective involved in this event please subscribe to this feed of night's history cast wherever you listen your podcast it feels great saying that because now it's officially on all platforms that everyone listens to podcasts so it feels great to say that but yeah please 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 stay tuned to night's history cast i very much appreciate it i will see you all on the next one thank you everybody 